This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's good to be in the presence of God. It's good to be with one another. If you're a guest here, can I add my welcome to you? It's great to have you with us. If you have a Bible with you, you might like to grab a hold of it and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Green. And what we're going to do is we're going to read a famous story from the Old Testament. Chances are, if you've been around church for any length of time or if you know your Bible well, this story will be very familiar to you. It's a story that is loaded with emotion and anguish, difficulty and distress. And yet it's a story of promise and hope. It's a story that at first reading might seem a bit confusing. It's the story of a father and his son. So we're going to jump straight in, Genesis chapter 22. This is what it says. <clears throat> okay. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. He loaded his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And so he says to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We're going to worship and then we will come back to you. And so Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the, burnt, uh, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it, and then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. And so he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called that place 
the Lord will provide. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this story. Thank you just that we could come this morning and sing, be in your presence, celebrate the cross, celebrate your grace to us. And God, as we look at this story this morning, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher, that you would enlarge the capacity of our hearts and minds to engage with your grace, to experience and understand and see in all its fullness your hand of goodness and grace towards us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and do a work in our hearts this morning. Amen. Amen. This is a famous story. It's an amazing story. It's quite confusing. It's loaded with anguish and emotion. And although we now know how the story ends, can you imagine being in that scenario? I mean, at the very least, it's confusing. But to be honest, I think you could go further. I think you could say it's an unbelievable request. It's, 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 it, it's outrageous. It's terribly cruel. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. I mean, why does God ask such a thing? Don't you think that sounds outrageous? Totally heart-wrenching for Abraham. Could you imagine, as a parent, could you imagine being asked anything worse? I mean, the thought's terrifying if it's even barely conceivable. But this is shaping up to be a moment that Abraham's going to remember for the rest of his life. It's going to be the day that he nearly loses his son, but simultaneously it's going to be the day that he gets his son back alive. And the command to sacrifice Isaac, I think, is all the more confusing if you know the story beforehand, if you know the amazing lengths that God went to to get Isaac there in the first place. If you don't know the story, Abraham is a guy who is famous for believing God. Okay? He's famous for believing God. He's a guy whose life is characterised by listening to God and obeying what God says. Do you know, obedience is not legalism, it's obedience. It's what God's looking for. And this guy is someone who will leave his home, he'll leave his family. He walked away from the land and the wealth and the status of his father's house. He followed the call and the promise of God without knowing what the future held without knowing where he was going, without necessarily knowing fully what the consequence of that would be. He's a guy who trusts God, and he's going to go on to be described as the father of all who believe. The writer to the Hebrews said that Abraham's very faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is a guy of extraordinary faith and extraordinary courage. He's a guy who's famous for believing God. And God comes to him one day and he says, Abraham, look up at the heavens. Can you see the number of stars in the sky? Can you count them? That's how many your sons will be. Have a look at the sand on the seashore. Can you count the number of the grains? That's how many your offspring will be. And Abraham could have been forgiven for laughing. Ha, you obviously haven't seen my track record yet. I haven't produced one son yet. The reality is that Abraham was an old guy. He was, I don't know, maybe even towards 100. And his wife, Sarah, was old and barren. But God makes an extraordinary promise to them. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your family to the ends of the earth. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And through your offspring is going to come the blessing of God to all the peoples of the earth. You're going to have a son. And it seems very improbable. But, and the years go by, and the impossible promise doesn't seem like it's coming to pass. And mingled with faith and anticipation, undoubtedly there's a sense of frustration and longing and confusion and possibly even disappointment. Joe and I have got some close friends who um, walked a similar journey. They probably weren't as old as Abraham and Sarah, of course, but they walked a similar journey for years and years and years. Friends around them are having children, and not just the first one, but the second and the third and the fourth. And increasingly they're saddened and confused and disappointed because it isn't happening for them. And I guess, you know, it's a bit trite to say that at, start, at the start, practice makes perfect, okay, so that's great. But after a little while, 
hopes and longings are becoming etched with pain. And we talked together and we prayed together and do you know what, publicly they handled it with extraordinary grace and extraordinary composure, but privately it was really tough for them. A real desire and longing to have children, the heartache of it not happening, medical investigations uh, indicating problems on both sides, a prognosis that if, if there was any remote possibility of having children, the odds were so vanishingly small that it was essentially not going to happen outside of an intervention from God. And they lived with hope, not giving up, holding tight to uh, prophetic words and encouragements that they'd been given, but yeah, it seemed like for them it wasn't going to happen. And what you need to know is that when God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. Okay, when God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. God is one who is faithful. His promises always come to pass. He doesn't speak a word of a lie. He comes through. All of the promises of God, the Bible says, find their yes in Jesus Christ and their amen from us to the glory of God. God doesn't give up on his promises. He comes through. He didn't give up on Abraham and Sarah. And by the way, he doesn't give up on you. And here's Abraham. He's a guy, great hero of faith, famous for believing and trusting God They struggle to conceive, but God promised, and Abraham holds on to the promise. All of God's promises come to pass. And so against all the odds, a pensioner, it literally is like this, a pensioner gave birth to a little boy. And actually just this Christmas just passed, our friends that I was just telling you about, who've been trying so long to conceive, they also had a son. We went to visit the day after the baby was born. And um, if you know me well, which some of you do, I'm not really the emotional type. I'm not drawn to tears particularly or this kind of thing. But I don't mind saying there were tears in my eyes looking at the love and the delight that these new parents had for their child, holding in my arms for a short while this miracle child and looking on with gratitude to God, I guess, that after the desperation and the hope and the longing and feeling like hope was fading... Nonetheless, they put their confidence and trust in Jesus and there was a miracle of a new son in their family. It's extraordinary. And there's something uh, quite special, quite profound, uh, uh, that you can't really put into words about what it's like when a child is born and placed in your arms. Before you, before you have children, maybe you think uh, you've got your own experience of being a child, uh, you see other people uh, parenting their kids and you have your own ideas, but honestly all of that is ac- academic, okay? and then the, re- the reality lands. Um, and you, uh, you, There are no words really to describe it, it's a special moment when that child is placed in your arms. I was uh, chatting to Ollie and Anna, some of you will know Ollie and Anna a few weeks ago, and uh, Ollie was saying to me, do you know what, I didn't know that even I had the capacity to love in the way that I've found that I do. Now this child has been born. And some of you will be able to, some of you will be able to relate to that. It's a special moment, isn't it? It's a moment that words can't really describe. The miracle of new life and the child being born. Something profoundly special has happened. The Bible tells us that children are a gift from God. Let me tell you, what's happened in that moment literally is that a gift from heaven has been placed in your arms. So no wonder you're a little bit speechless. Little wonder that words don't really do justice to describing what that feeling is like when the child is given to you. And here's Abraham, okay, and he's looking at his son, and this boy is precious. This boy is a miracle. This boy is a gift from God. The boy is so loved. He loved his son. God even says it in the verse that we read, take your son, your only son, whom you love. The language is important. It's, it's so emotive. The boy was so precious. And God asks Abraham not just to give him up, 
but to take Isaac to a mountain in the Moriah region, which is actually somewhere where historians and scholars uh, record uh, as the place where Jerusalem would come to be uh, established. Uh, take Isaac there and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And it doesn't it seem just utterly hopeless, completely desperate, completely unfair? Do you know, Isaac... He's both the fulfilment and the future of the promise. Do you, do you get that? All of the hopes and the longings for a son to be born and for God's promises to come to pass found their completion and their satisfaction in the birth of this miracle child. But also, all of the hope for the future, for God's stated intention to make Abraham a blessing to the ends of the earth, also is embodied in the life of this child. Isaac is the fulfilment of promise and the future of promise. And Abraham finds himself in the absolutely impossible, desperate scenario where the dream of what God's given to them finally materialises and then all of a sudden it looks like hope is fading away. Hope is beginning to die. It's as if all they've been waiting for and all they've been longing for, just as it's coming to pass, is disappearing in a moment, fading away, a dream breaking and hope dying. I wonder if you've ever been in a place like that where you perhaps feel like you're stepping out into the things of God where you've, uh, believing, where you've believed things that God's spoken over, over your life, stepping out in your gifting. Maybe you've had a sense of God's call on your life and opportunities beginning to present themselves. You're just, it feels, I guess, as if you're just beginning to step out into all that God has for you and then circumstances change. Difficulties arise. Things don't seem to work out in the way that you'd hoped or thought and it can be confusing and disappointing and disorientating. Almost like the hopes and dreams of what God had spoken to you, just as it was coming to pass, hope is fading away. That's exactly where this guy is. That's exactly where Abraham is. After all the hope and all the longing, it now seems that hope is fading and dying away. And it's, I think you come, to this, you come to this story and I think it's hard not to ask this question. Okay, Why does God create such an impossible situation? Why does God create such angst? Why does he allow such a situation to come about? It's just so difficult. Abraham is caught. It's like being between a rock and a hard place. It's like being in checkmate if you play chess. Whichever way you turn, however you move the pieces, however you try and plot a way out, you can't move. He's in an impossible situation. Let me explain. On the one hand, you've got a father who dearly loves his son, desperately wants him to live and prosper, and more than that, knows that the future of the promise lies in the life of this son. So for that reason also, he wants him to live. On the one hand, he wants life. On the other hand, there's been a pronouncement of death over Isaac. On the one hand, he wants life. On the other hand, there's a pronouncement of death. And Abraham's trapped. He can't save his son's life and be obedient to God. He can't satisfy judgment and get mercy. He can't endure death and win life. It's more than being boxed in. It's more than being trapped. It's more than being completely stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's game over. It's checkmate. And do you know, this isn't just Abraham's story. This is our story. Abraham's position is our position. We want life. We want hope. We want a future that's secure. We want the promises of God to come to pass in our lives. We want and need relationship with God and to be deeply connected to him. We want life. But because of our rebellion and our wickedness, because of sin, we know that we deserve a pronouncement of judgment. We want mercy, but we deserve judgment. Abraham's position is our position. His story represents our story. 
you know what I think also is a bit weird in this event? Do you notice this? He doesn't complain. When God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering, it just seems like he just gets on with it without saying anything about it. Did you notice that? God asks something that is seemingly outrageous, impossible for a father to do. And Abraham just obeys without questioning. And I think that's a little bit strange, don't you? And a couple of chapters back, in chapter 18, actually you see Abraham pleading with God for the people of Sodom, crying out to God for mercy. So why here doesn't he argue? I mean, it's his own son. He doesn't argue. He doesn't plead with God. He doesn't even speak up. The other thing I think you can observe is you can read this story, and I wonder how many of you thought this when you read the story. What's Isaac done wrong? I mean, he seems innocent, doesn't he? Who thinks that? He does, doesn't he? Surely he doesn't deserve it. But friends, that's the whole point of the story. He isn't innocent, and he does deserve it. See, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden are deceived and sin enters the world, rebellion and sin infiltrates every generation. Sin impacts all people. No one is innocent. No one is free from guilt and sin and being deserving of judgment. No one is free from that. Abraham isn't. We aren't. Isaac isn't. Do you know, in our culture, we're so individualistic, aren't we? We filter everything that we see and read and hear through the lens of self. What does that mean for me? <laughs> yeah? How's that going to affect me? What opportunities does that give to me? In other cultures, and particularly in the day of Abraham and Isaac, the driving factor would never be so much the individual and the personal and how does this affect me. It's about the collective and the family. So hopes and dreams and aspirations are less motivated about the individual and more driven around the legacy of the family. News and events would be measured considering the impact on the family. In our day and age, it's all about me. In their culture, it's all about the family. And in a big way, the actions of one family member can directly affect the reputation of the whole family. The success of one family member can bring honour to the family. The mistakes or transgressions of one family member can also, likewise, reflect on the whole family and bring shame. Who knows the story of the prodigal son? Probably everybody. It's the, like, the most famous story that's ever been told. Okay, and basically one son, the youngest son, he brings shame not just on himself, not just on the standing of his entire family, but he brings shame on the entire community. He values his dad's assets more than the father himself. He brings shame on the father by forcing through a rushed disposal of the land and the assets. And you know, when you liquidate stock and when you sell off your land quickly, you've got to take a cut price. Okay, so the size of the family estate at that time would have been directly linked to the reputation of the family going back generations. And now you cut it negatively. That impacts not just the profitability of the business, or the livelihood of the immediate family, but it also severely damages their reputation and social standing in the community and the prosperity of the family at large. And likely, more than that, it also negatively impacts the prospects and prosperity of many other families in the village who would have depended on the estate for work and for income and for provision and for their respective standing in the community. The youngest son, he, he brings shame on himself, yeah, sure. He brings shame on the father, yeah. He brings shame on the family, definitely. But in some senses, he brings shame on the entire community. 
And when you hear that story being retold, which we do every now and again, probably quite frequently, okay, um, what you often hear of is the love of the father who watches out for his son, waiting for his son to return. And when he sees him, even from far away, he runs to greet him. And when that's explained, obviously, it's, it's associated with the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness and the grace of God. And yes, in that moment when the father embraces him, it does show the acceptance and the love and the mercy and the grace of God. But don't miss the fact that the dad has to run. The reason he's watching is so that he can get there first. Okay, the reason he's watching is so that he can get there first and get to the son first. Because if he doesn't, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The mob from the village are going to get to him first and they're going to kill him. All right? They're going to beat him and they're going to kick him out. They might kill him because of the shame and the dishonour that he's brought on the community. That's why the father runs. The second aspect that we need to know about their culture is the primary position that's given to a firstborn son. A firstborn son would be expected to be the person who would inherit the status of, as like head of the family, if you like, when the father dies. He's the person who's going to carry responsibility for the legacy of the family into the future. He's the one who's going to inherit the significant proportion of the state. He's going to be someone who is representative of the whole family. Okay? The firstborn son represents the whole family. Now put all of those ideas together. Okay? Here's what we've got. Everybody sins, everybody is guilty, nobody is innocent, and the firstborn in the family represents the family. And it means that God would consider the firstborn in a family representative of and liable for the sins of the whole family. And the Old Testament bears that out time and time again, written in the Mosaic Law. The firstborn son is liable. He's the representative one to bear the consequences of the sins of the entire family. The life of the firstborn male is forfeit unless there is a redemption penalty paid. And so actually on an ongoing basis, uh, people made sacrifices, they gave money, they gave service in the temple, sure. But in reality, the collective debt of the family was over the life of the firstborn son. He is considered representative and liable and his life is forfeit unless they are redeemed. So when God says to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac, Abraham knows exactly what it means. There is nothing to say. There's no argument to be made. There's no pleading to be done, because God is entitled to make that request. And Abraham knows it. That's why he's got wood for a fire and builds an altar. It's a sin offering. God doesn't say, just take him out the back and kill him with a knife. He says, make a fire. What's going to happen is a sacrifice for sin. It's an atonement offering. Abraham knows that it's all about sin. And he knows that because of his sin and the sin of his entire family, God has the right to say that Isaac's life is forfeit. And the boy's life is now in danger unless someone pays. Unless someone redeems. And friends, that's where we were. Abraham and Isaac's story is like our story. We are those who are in need of mercy, but under judgment, trapped, hemmed in, unable to get out, checkmates, completely liable, totally unable to solve our own problem. And all of the confusion and pain and anguish in this story, in reality, is a feature of everyone's story since Adam and Eve. 
Our lives are forfeit unless someone redeems. We need someone to pay a ransom. We need a redeemer. And so here it goes. Abraham obeys. He gets up, he takes his son, he puts him on a donkey and rides him into the back of, the, rides him into the Moriah region. And when they get towards the location, he ties the wood for the sacrifice to Isaac's back to carry up the hill to the place of the sacrifice. And Isaac recognises that there's no lamb. Oh, this, isn't this heart-wrenching part of the story? Isaac recognises that there's no lamb and he, he says, Dad, where's, where's the lamb? Can you imagine the lump in, uh, in Abraham's throat when he says, God will provide? I mean, you just can't even, you can't even imagine it, can you? You can't imagine it. He ties Isaac down and he's about to kill him. And we saw that God interrupts. And caught in the thicket, in the brambles, in the thorns, is a ram trapped by his horns. And Abraham's stunned. He rejoices. They sacrifice the ram as a burnt offering. And Abraham declares something very famous that day. He says, on this mountain, God provides. On this mountain, God provides. So what an incredible request. I mean, it seems outrageous, doesn't it? Sacrifice your own son. What could be worse? I mean, just ask yourself that question. Maybe some of you, many of you are parents. Just try and put yourself in that position. I want you to sacrifice your son. What, a requ- what could be worse than that? Possibly the only thing that could be worse than being asked to do that is actually going through with it, right? I mean, what a terrible, terrible request. Who is it that can ask such a thing? Who is it that can ask such a thing? Presumably only one is prepared to do it himself. Because you see, God so loved the world that he was prepared to give his one and only son. We read in Romans 8, he didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved dearly. The language is significant. At Jesus' baptism, God opens the heavens and says, this is my son whom I love. And that's a love way beyond any love that a normal father has for his children. That's a love way deeper than the fiercest love that any of us might have realised that we have towards our own children. And Tom even mentioned it this morning. I'm not sure that we always follow the calendar, but today is Palm Sunday. Today we remember that there is another precious son who would also travel into the Moriah region on the back of a donkey. One who would be betrayed by those closest to him. He was literally given up to his captors for the ransom money equivalent to the going price of a slave. Falsely accused, mocked, tormented, cursed. He became a victim of a politically staged and poisoned trial set up to condemn him as an enemy of the state. God didn't spare his son. It says God gave him up for us. You should read that verse like God delivered him over for us. God gave him up for us. God delivered him over for us. Don't miss this moment. This is a moment that is unparalleled in history. Okay, this is an unparalleled moment in all of history where God's hatred and righteous anger at sin and his total and complete love for us collide. And something needs to give. And in an act of divine wisdom and love... 
God delivered Jesus over for us. And you could say, well, hang on a minute, didn't Judas deliver him over? Or didn't Pilate deliver him over? Didn't Herod and the crowds deliver him over? What about the soldiers? Didn't Jesus himself deliver himself over? And the answer to those questions, of course, is all yes. But in the ultimate sense, through all of those human actions, there was one hand that was orchestrating what was happening. You see it here in Romans 8.32. God delivered Jesus over for us. Peter, in his famous sermon at the beginning of the book of Acts, says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Jesus wasn't spared anything as God delivered him up for us. So silently, like a, like a lamb led to, led to slaughter, like a sheep before the shearer, Jesus was silent against the accusations. And Howard described last week the pain that Jesus went through as he was punched and kicked and flogged and whipped and beaten to within an inch of his life. And you've got to understand that Jesus was pretty young and he was tough. He'd done like 15 to 20 years of like manual work. Okay, so he was pretty, he was pretty strong. He'd done carpentry and building work. Okay, so his body was... Uh, yeah, he was, let's just put it like that, he was young and tough and he would probably have managed to hold on. But a lot of people um, didn't even make it past the beating, so severe what it, it was. Some people died in that process. And the way it worked was they basically they got a rod um, and on the, on the end of the rod were some leather straps. And on the end of leather straps were like little rocks and like nails and hooks. And what they'd do is they'd bind you up like this, kind of lean you over, and then across your back and your bum and the back of your legs over and over and over and the leather straps lash against the back and the stones, the rocks, they tenderise the flesh and the hooks and the nail dig right in, right down deep to the deep tissue and they pull it right out and they go again and again and again and again and it was brutal and it was sustained. I don't think we can even really understand it. He was absolutely battered, he was smashed to pieces, beaten literally to within an inch of his life. The Bible says that he was marred beyond human likeness. That means he was so battered, bloodied, broken and bruised that you wouldn't have even been able to recognise who he was. It was prolonged. It was extensive. And all the time he was taunted, cursed, abused, spat at. It wasn't just that God gave Jesus over. It was that Jesus wasn't spared anything. And then he has a crossbar strapped to his back and the carpenter, who would be used to carrying hunks of wood, is now carrying this roughly hewn wooden beam on his shoulders. He can barely walk. But just like Isaac, Jesus now carries the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice. But do you know what? He's so weak that he collapses. And he would have had his arms tied around the, uh, the crossbar. He wouldn't have been able to break his fall. Some commentators reckon that that would be like you or me being um, like in a, in a high-speed car crash without a seatbelt on and just getting pummeled into the steering column and the massive crush internal injuries that that would have caused. Man, he's so weak he collapses. He can't break his fall. So what they do, he can't carry on. If you know the story, what happens is they pull a guy out of the crowd to help him. Just as a tangent, here's another little story about uh, a father and his son. Okay, another story about a father and his son. Um, the guy that they pull out of the crowd is a guy called Simon. In, uh, in Mark's Gospel, it says that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. You later read about Rufus. 
in Romans 16. He's one of the leaders in the church in Rome. Do you know, I believe that Simon crossed the line of faith that day. I think we can pretty safely assume that just like the criminal on the cross, just like the centurion soldier, I think Simon gets saved that day. I think he sees what happens to Jesus and he makes a decision for Jesus in faith that day and that goes on to have an impact in the generations of his family. And do you know what? I think that's a big idea and I think that's worth just holding on, even though it's just a little tangent from where I was talking. The decisions we make for Jesus today can have significant impact in the future. Saying yes to living for Jesus today, making godly choices today, living to please the one who called us can have a lasting uh, impact and impression and legacy. And I guess I'm thinking about um, Simon's kids. Think about our kids. Listen, we don't save our kids. Jesus does that. Jesus does that. But we can take responsibility for the choices that we make, what we expose them to, how we raise them, the example that we set, prioritising living for Jesus as a family within the bigger church family. Ultimately, you can't reap what doesn't get sown. Making decisions today to put Jesus first, making decisions based on faith in Jesus, living life in response to God's goodness, making choices to live God's way, that's what God's looking for and it can have a lasting legacy. And I think it did for Simon that day. I think he crossed the line of faith that day. Anyway, that's a little tangent. Um, They get to the top of the hill. Simon helps them get to the top of the hill. And like Isaac was pinned down onto the wood for the sacrifice, so too Jesus Except Jesus wasn't tied down, he was literally pinned down. And hands that were used to driving nails now have nails being driven through them. And we can see that on a hill in Moriah, just as Abraham uh, declared, God did provide. Yeah, God did provide. But this time it wasn't a ram caught in a thorny bush. This time it was a lamb. The lamb of God with a crown of thorns on his head. God's only son, whom he loved. Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, God has always had a plan to rescue the world. And most of the story of the Bible, most of the story of history is God's plan to put things right. It's the story of who God is, what God's done, what we've done and what God's done to save us. And so his plan, at great expense and great cost to himself, was this. He sent his son. He didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. And at the cross, Jesus was punished. He took the blame bearing in his own flesh the righteous anger of God for all the sin and suffering in the world, making a way possible for healing and restoration. You need to see that God doesn't just wipe us out and start again. Instead, he looks to redeem his creation. He looks to rescue and restore. That's how he's done it, at great cost to himself. He didn't spare his son. There is a great redeemer and we can marvel at the cost and at the great cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus completely deals with our sin issue. And through the cross, Jesus offers life. He said it himself, I've come to give you life, and life in all of its fullness. Paul says, the Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. Our sin was so great that nothing less than the death of Jesus could save us. Yet, as David says, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. God demonstrates his love towards us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and I'm so valued that he was glad to die for me. Friends, God relentlessly offers his grace to people who don't deserve it, sometimes don't even seek it, don't even appreciate it, sometimes after they've been saved by it. At the cross, grace overwhelms sin, life triumphs over death. Jesus takes upon himself all of our guilt and shame and sin. The problem where we were trapped and where we couldn't get out is dealt with by Jesus at the cross. He deals with it in his body and offers us righteousness as a credit to our account in exchange. Howard quoted that verse last week, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's probably the most profound statement in the entire Bible. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, in order that in Jesus, you and I might become the righteousness of God. And so what I want us to do this morning as we come and respond in a moment is to look with awe and wonder and immense gratitude at this moment, at this yeah, truly barbaric scene, but realising that at this most significant moment in all of history, just at the right time when we were powerless, Jesus died for us at the cross, winning a victory that we could never have won. Martin Luther said, the greatest wonder ever on earth is that the Son of God died the shameful death of the cross. And Tozer said, you know, we can exaggerate about many things, but what we can never exaggerate about is the abundance of Jesus' love for us. It's why we can sing hymns like The Power of the Cross. Christ became sin for us, taking the blame, bearing the wrath, so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. I love that old hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? It was me who him to death pursued. My chains fell off, my heart was free. No condemnation now I dread. I'm clothed with righteousness divine. Boldly I can approach the eternal throne of God with confidence. I can come right into the very presence of God because at the cross Jesus makes that possible. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God would die for me? Spurgeon said this, my entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. It never gets old. That's the truth that never gets old. And Carson said, those who are the most mature are those who come back frequently to the cross as the measure of God's love for them. Jesus in my place. Jesus in your place. What can we say to this? If God's for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.